Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 174 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Bite Me, an interview with Ali Hilfiger. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, Ali Hilfiger is one of the most accomplished women we've ever interviewed. In fact, she's one of the most accomplished women I've ever met. And what was most shocking about her story is that she was suffering from chronic Lyme disease since she's seven years old and she's been able to accomplish so much despite suffering from a chronic disease. And Rich, what really stood out to me about this interview with Ali Hilfiger is that we often hear from our followers and listeners that if they were rich and they had resources, they'd be able to overcome chronic Lyme very quickly. And that's simply just not true. Allie Hilfiger was on the sick merry-go-round for decades, and the tools that got her into remission were not those that cost a significant amount of money. So Matt, this woman decided that she was going to dedicate her life and dedicate her career to helping other people. And she started by writing the book, Bite Me. And since then, she has become one of the most powerful advocates in the Lyme disease community. And we were really blessed to have this really powerful and vulnerable interview with the author of Bite Me, Allie Hilfiger. Hey, Allie, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me, you guys. Well, we're really blessed to have you, Allie. We're really excited about this podcast. Our followers are really excited about this podcast. So Ali, I want to start in a unique place with you on this podcast, and I want you to talk to us or share with us about the lowest point in your journey. Where were you? Okay. What was it like? What was going on when you were at your lowest point? Whoa, I love this. This is, this is really interesting, first of all. And thank you. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here today. So here we go. Let's think. The lowest point. Ah, I was... 24, 25 years old, the lowest point, gosh, there, I think there've been a couple. All right. The first lowest point was when I was 18 years old, after my TV show had aired, after I couldn't decide whether or not I was going to go to school, to college after graduating. um, And before I ended up in a psych ward. That was probably my first lowest point in not being, not having any control over my mind or my emotions or my body. And the the most frustrating thing was not having control over my my body and my mind. Um, So, you know, ending up and waking up in a psych ward, which is how my book starts, was probably the lowest point in my life. So talk to us about what it was like to be brought to that psych ward by your dad and Mm -hmm. his, I guess, his security staff. Mm -hmm. So, well, you know, I was living in, after high school graduation and filming the show, I lived in Miami with my then boyfriend and I was lost. I was lost. I also, it was, I couldn't go anywhere without being recognized, which I was unprepared for and, and really f- freaked out and overwhelmed by. And I came back home around Christmas time and I was just extremely ungrounded and very ADD all over the place. Uh, couldn't, really string a sentence together very easily. I was smoking a lot of pot at the time because it was helping with physical symptoms of not being able to eat or sleep and constantly feeling nauseous. So the weed really helped, but if, you know, back then it was like, you, you know, anywhere you could get weed, you took it. It wasn't like now you can go to a store and, and be very specific about what kind of strain, etc. cetera. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I just, I think that 
all of my frustrations and anxieties boiled up to one peak at that point and I needed help. I need, I wanted help. I wanted someone to help contain me and put me back together and heal me. I wanted healing and I didn't know where to go or how to get it. And I, I, I think I wanted structure. I wanted someone to take care of me and, and feed me and help me to, to sleep um, and take the nausea away and take the joint pain away and, you know, focus me. And I, I, I couldn't. And my poor father just had no idea what to do. And he talked to a psychiatrist, I believe at the time, and was telling him about my behavior and just everything. And I think she was like, listen, we've got to get this, this, this girl into a place, like a medical place where she can, we can like start from ground zero, stabilize her and then figure out what's going on. So they, they, you know, they, they drugged me basically. I thought I was going to Jamaica. <laughs> I was like, I just need to go to Jamaica and lie on a beach and just hang out with Rastas because that's going to help, which maybe it would have, who knows? They probably would have given me papaya leaf tea and garlic to help, you know, whatever. Anyway, I ended up in a psych ward with like looking down at my Adidas sneakers and the shoelaces were out. And I was like, what is going on? Where am I? I mean, I've never been suicide. I've never been like a suicidal person or, you know, I, I've always been like a very good girl, pretty pretty stable-ish. I mean, I had a lot of panic attacks in my teens, but anyway, I was just so confused. And I think being in that, that hospital was the lowest point in my life. Sally, I'm going to ask you to now look at this from a different vantage point. Uh, I shared with you that I'm the parent of four daughters and I read your book twice. I read your book before Matt and I started this podcast. and, And then I reread your book last week. And when I was reading the book, um, I got to the part where um, you were describing the steps your father had to take Mm. to have you moved from your mother's apartment to ultimately going to this hospital that you went to. Mm -hmm. And I was reading it as I was stepping into your father's shoes when I read it. And I, I had to put the book down. Because yeah. I couldn't do what your dad did. I, I, I just, I'm not strong enough. I would not have been able to do what your dad did had this been my experience. It was so powerful for me. I had to put the book down because I could, it, it, was, it was so well written and I was so emotional as I read that. So now I'm going to ask you to look at this, not from the perspective that you had written the book, which is Ali's perspective. I'm now going to ask you to look at it as if you're the parent because you're now a mother you have a child, if it was your child that was in the position that you were in, and you're now the parent the way your father had been, yeah. describe for us what you would do. And do you believe you could be as strong as your dad had been? Because he had to overcome your mother's objections. He had to overcome your objections. He had to overcome your mother's security objections. Yeah. Would you be able to do that? Well, I, I don't know, because I, I haven't been, I haven't had to do it. I can imagine that I'm made up of a lot of the same stuff as my father and I do have his strength and I do have his wisdom and I do have his heart and soul, which is very deep and very vast. And he has a, one of the biggest, kindest hearts of any human I've ever met. And 
I do believe that I would be able to muster up the strength if I knew, if I was like 1000% sure that this was the solution to getting my daughter well. But he couldn't have been 100% sure, 1000% sure, because he didn't have, know what was no. wrong with you. He, he, he couldn't have, and, and, I, and I think, gosh, I, you know, I cannot, it would, it was probably one of the hardest decisions he's ever had to make and the hardest thing. And I, and I, and I cannot imagine, I really, I don't know. And I, and I might've, I might with me crying in his arms, the way I was in the moment that he was holding me and trying to get the medicine in my mouth and having the security guard with it. I mean, I think I would have probably broke down and just been like, you know what, honey, just, I, I don't know if I can, Let's, yeah, let's just go to Jamaica. <laughs> I don't know. I do not know the moment of like getting me in the car, like getting the medicine in my mouth, get like, physically holding me with the thing, with the security people, my mom freaking out and screaming at the, in the home, I, in the house I grew up in, getting me in the car. Well, I willingly went in the car because I thought he was bringing me to the airport. And like, I mean, I just would have been so emotional or as a parent, what I've noticed is when a like, like a emergency happens or like a crisis happens, I kind of go into this weird, slow motion robotic mode where I'm, I'm, I'm very emotionally detached and it's almost, I, I sink into this like very slow motion robot where I can take care of the situation in a very methodical, practical, deliberate way. This was, this is different. This is not like, oh my God, your kid cut her finger open and you have to do something. This is like very different and it's very deep. And so I, I don't know. I really don't know. And God, it's just like breaks my heart to think that. And I, and it's so interesting. Like a few weeks ago I was with him and I was like, I was crying, just being like, I, the, I'm so sorry for having to put you through that. And I, I so badly wanted to get better in my life, in my twenties, especially because I did not want my pain to hurt you anymore. And I was so angry at myself. I was so angry with my body. And with my mind, I mean, my mind, I was so angry with my body for not being able to get well and to keep having the relapses and to keep going through the struggle because I knew how much it hurt him to see his, his daughter who, you know, we're, we have an incredibly close relationship. And so I was just like crying and like in his arms again, being like, I just was so mad at myself and I'm so happy that I'm healthy now and that I get, that you get to see me thriving in my life, that I get to give you that gift of me well, because it just pained me to know that I was burdening him or making him feel so sad to see his daughter unwell. I mean, that was really... Maybe that, that like guilt, it was like a guilt and shame that I held on to that I walked around with that guilt and shame, which of course ultimately doesn't get you healthy. It was, it's a very multi-layered situation. And 
the long and short of it is I hope that I would have the strength to do what he did. And I think that I would because of my own experience. I, I, I'd say, I know this is going to help and yeah, it's going to really suck, but I know. Um, but I'd probably have a few moments where I'd like walk away and be, tell my husband, like, I, I can't do this. <laughs> so let's, let's give this scene some context. Let's walk okay. back to um, your early life. You were, you were a, uh, you're a native New Yorker, right? You were born to two yeah. artists. So talk to us about your parents and uh, your birthplace, New York, and what your early life was like. Well, yeah, my parents grew up in upstate New York. They were both artists, uh, clothing designers, into music, kind of like hippies, I guess, in a way. Not like extreme, but the hearts of hippies, I guess. And they moved to New York. I was conceived in Soho, which I love. (laughs) (laughs) And born on the Upper West Side. And... uh, they moved to Connecticut when I was one year, a year old. My dad had just launched Tommy Hilfiger. And when I was five, my brother was born. And then we moved to New York when he was about a year old. And we went, we, he, they rented, I mean, they were, he was making money at that point, which was so unusual for them because they, they did not grow up with, with means really. And uh, so they rented houses in the Hamptons, in Bridgehampton. And uh, I was bitten by a tick and it was on my tummy. Now, do you remember the tick bite experience? Or is this something that was relayed to you? You know, it, it's sort of like the way that they're studying memory now. If you're told a story enough, you start to adapt it as your own. And you think, so I, I, at this point, I have somehow conjured up this memory from my mother's story that I remember being on the bed and her pulling the tick off of my belly button. Like I can see it. I can see her, the tweezers. I can see it on my belly button because I have a little birthmark there. I can see it coming off. I, I kind of can like remember that memory of being on the bed. So, but is it, I don't know. If, if that's real or not. So who knows? Now, do you recall being concerned about ticks at that stage in your life? No, 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 no. I mean, they were just like g- yucky and weird, you know, they were just kind of like a bug, like yucky when you're seven years old, but it wasn't this serious, like intense thing. Like, oh my God, you got bit by a rattlesnake and you're going to die. You know, it wasn't anything like that. It was just like, ugh, you know, now you grew up in the Lime Belt, right? You were you were spending yeah. time on Long Island. You're spending time in New York City, upstate New York, Connecticut. Connecticut. So you're in yeah, the Lime Belt. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you were you given any any education or training about tick awareness, tick avoidance, tick tick uh, removal? Well, no, I I was not. But my mother, since being in Connecticut, I think she had some knowledge from you know, town hall and the, and the pediatrician's office. So she was wise enough and she was educated enough at that time, which is, which was a little rare, I think in the nineties, the 1990s, early nineties. Yeah. And she took the tick off and saved it and sent it to the town hall, which was advanced for that time to, to do, to do something like that. And the results came back and they were inconclusive. 
So let's let's pause there for a minute. So we we we're in the early '90s. Uh, there's not a whole lot known about uh, ticks and Lyme disease at the time. Your mom is pretty sophisticated. She removes the tick. She takes you to a doctor, which is pretty pretty um, uh, rare and sophisticated. She saves the tick and has this, the, the tick tested. So she does almost everything right. And certainly yeah. at that time, she is way ahead of her time. Yet you still get sick. Right. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, that she, she really did have to do everything right. And she even argued with the doctor because they, 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 I think she sent the tick to a second place. And the doctor was like, this, these are, we're not able to really decide whether or not this tick is infected or not. And she argued with the doctor. She had like a heated discussion being like, this is so unacceptable. What are you, what are you saying? And I think it kind of died off from there in a way. So do you know if you were given any prophylactic treatment by the doctor that your mother brought you to when you were seven? No, I was not. Okay. So now let's, let's fast forward. So these two artists, these two brilliant artists who ultimately both become very successful, um, have you as a child. So, you know, genetically your DNA is that of an artist and you sort of live this life where, uh, the manifestation of these two brilliant artists starts to have uh, starts to have some success, but you also have some some struggles during your childhood. So talk about before you get to sixteen, some of the struggles that you were having, um, both with your health and with your education. Okay, well, I remember being in first grade, first and second grade in New York City, and right after I was bitten by the tip, and having joint pain in my knees and having to bend my legs a lot because just to stretch out my knees because my knees were hurting a lot they were like kind of squeaky and tight and, and sore so I'd keep bending my legs at the knee joint and they would call you know say what are you doing with those frog legs you're making frog legs and I just kept kicking my heels up to my butt like all the time it was it almost became like a habit almost like a almost like a tick in a way, because it, it felt good. Um, and then I was having a lot of strep throats, which, you know, strep throat things and some, some, some tummy issues. And then when I was in about third grade or so, I started getting some headaches. And my, my mother brought me to the pediatrician. So this, this, my child was having like pain in her legs, joint pain and Things and they, she, they said, oh, it's just, it's a growing pains. Okay, it's growing pains. So, uh, and also my, and you listen, my, but my father is dyslexic. My mother is, you know, ADD. And it, listen, we, we have learning disability, classic learning disabilities running in our family. So it's like no surprise that like reading was difficult and I got numbers all mixed up, but my eyesight and my eyes and my vision kept going in and out. And when I would, when I would read, which was difficult for me anyway, to, to, to comprehend the reading as well was, was challenging. But then my vision would go in and out. And my memory started to be an issue in, in, in fourth grade, in fifth grade, you know, memorizing things for tests and quizzes became extremely overwhelming and I became very anxious about it. And yeah. 
So Ali, you're, you're having very classic Lyme disease symptoms. You yep. have parents who are caring parents. You have parents yep. who have means. They're bringing you to doctors. And um, there seem to be a lot of explanations, non-Lyme explanations that they're falling on, whether it be learning disabilities or, right. or other types of explanations. Right. So talk to us about what you are doing, right? Because you're this sort of the manifestation of an artist. What types of things are you doing? What type of uh, acting classes and the kinds of things are you right. taking at that time in your life? I was always in theater. I was always acting. I was always in theater groups. I was always in all the plays. And it was just my favorite thing to do. I would do summer camp, theater summer camps. I would do theater. I was in theater programs outside of school and in school, always in, in, doing the plays. And, and, you know, memorizing the lines was, you know, definitely a struggle for me. And it was something that I would get nervous about. But what I would do is I would understand the character enough and understand the story enough and connect with that. So that way, in case I did forget my lines, I would be able to improvise appropriately within the story as the character. And I would have to really, and you know, listening and paying attention I would kind of like space out and kind of, you know, get distracted and whatever. And that might just be part of my personality, but I, I would really have to work a little bit harder on the lines and concentrating and, you know, and, and, and physical moving was sometimes a little bit challenging for me, but I loved it so much that I didn't really care. So now at a very year, at a very young age, you began to uh, make some inroads into the uh, into the acting world and the theater right. world. And I yep. understand at 16, you did something that was unique. Can you share with us what that was? Well, okay, this is after the Broadway thing or? Well, talk, talk, about, talk to us about Broadway and then talk to us about, uh, about what you had produced. Okay, so, well, I, at 16, I, I produced a feature film called Proud which is about the first African-American soldiers being ranked in the Navy in World War II. And they were on a defender escort and they ended up being deployed to Ireland. Um, and they were recommended for commendation by the, one of the commanders and they were denied the commendation due to their race. So, and they were also, they were treated very poorly on the shores of the US. However, they were treated very fair and equally in Ireland. So we shot the movie in Buffalo, New York on one of their defender escorts in the Naval Yard, which was freezing cold. And we shot some of it in Elmira, New York, my father's hometown, and then shot some of it in Ireland, which was such a cool experience. And we, I got Sidney Poitier. I, well, no, I spoke to Sidney Poitier on the phone about him being, uh, the star of, of the film and he was he was so sweet he was so you know touched it was so cool to speak with him um and and you know we the, the film is now it's it's in 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 education centers and on stars and it's it was sort of one of these things that fell into my lap and that I ran with. I, I kind of blindly ran with at 16. I had no idea what I was doing, but I did it. We did it. It was amazing. 
So despite suffering from classic Lyme disease symptoms that were not yet diagnosed, you were able to produce a film that, that still has legs to this day at the age of 16. I, I did. Yeah. I, yeah. So That's talk kind of about- wild. Well, I, you know, it's a lot of intuition, a lot of, a lot of business intuitive, a lot of, you know, I, what I was doing, I was managing, I was not functioning at my highest level. And again, I, at 16, so 16, I, I started to write the notes on the script and 16, we started to say, okay, let's do this movie. Then I turned 17 and at around 16, that's when I smoked pot for the first time. And I realized that the, I was like, oh my God, this is a miracle. This, this, the weed, weed was like a lifesaver for me, but was also a detriment because it made me, you know, sleep through my alarm. I, you know, was eating, eating unhealthy snacks at night, which of course was like probably inflammatory foods. I was forgetful, but I managed, I just kind of faked it till I made it. Well, I, well, you you were also self medicating, right? I mean, you were. I was totally from... self medicating, and it was it was great, but it was not like you know there was like a couple of times where I slept through my alarm, and I, I should have been on set. <laughs> <laughs> so, talk to us about Broadway and 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 your relationship with Broadway. Okay, so when I was two third around 13 years old, a family friend of ours said, hey, my friend has um, written a play, a musical play. And I think you would be a, a wonderful to act in it. So I said, okay, great. So we did a little, little audition at like her home and her couch. And she said, great, I want you to play the, the uh, supporting character. I said, great, I'll do it. And it went from off, off Broadway to off Broadway eventually to city center which I still can't really, is it like on Broadway? Is City Center considered on Broadway? It is. Okay, so they're on Broadway. <laughs> I mean, we had a playbill. I mean, you know, I always want to be specific about my words and I always paranoid that I'm, you know, I have that f f fear of being a fraud. You know, what, what is that? Imposter syndrome? <laughs> That's what it's called. A lot of people in my generation have this, by the way, I've learned. A, it's very, very a lot of people with Lyme disease have it, right? Yeah, there you go. So that's that's what that's what that is. So let's let's talk about your your step onto uh, the N MTV set and Rich Girls. Oh boy, and what was that experience like? How did how did you oh. become one of the first reality TV stars? And what was that experience like? All right. So after the film Proud was launched, I am. Um, there was an article in the New Yorker or the New York magazine about me being a producer at 17 years old and about the film. And MTV saw it and they called me up and they said, hey, we think that it's incredible what you've done. Will you come into our offices and we just want to have a meeting with you and maybe discuss doing something with you. And I thought, cool, I mean, MTV is cool. Let's, why not? So I, I, I said, my high school, you know, gets at my last class is at 3.30. I can be there at four, four o'clock. This is Halloween. I arrive in the offices with like a full, I'm like wearing like this white blazer, a white skirt and huge feathered angel wings and glitter all over my face. That was like a sexy angel with like a corset underneath, whatever. I was like in 11th grade or something. 
So I arrive in the office by myself, you know, no, I've ne never had a manager, an agent, no father, no lawyer, no anybody, anybody. This is me. Right. And, um, they, they were like, Oh, wow. What, what a great costume. <laughs> And by the way, we're, we're fascinated with your film. So I was like really chatty about the movie and really excited about the film thinking, oh great, we can get proud on MTV. Like, this is so cool. We can get this story out there. And they're like, well, we, we want, maybe we're thinking about like, maybe if you ever heard of a VJ, would you want to be a VJ and host your own show? Which I should have said yes. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, no, like, I, I don't want to do anything like that. I was probably nervous about remembering lines or something at that point. And I said, you know, I, I really prefer to be behind the scenes, which makes zero sense since I grew up on the stage. Whatever. I don't know what, what happened there. A glitch. And they said, oh, cool. Well, maybe you can come, you can develop a, a TV show with us. Do you, do you have any ideas? I mean, I came into this meeting with zero preparation. I had to, no, like zero preparation at all. And all of a sudden I thought, what would be an interest, you know, in the middle of the meeting, what would be an interesting topic to explore for MTV? And I thought, oh, here we go. It's, it's fascinating how different the lives of teenagers are in the private school community of New York City. But there's a lot of judgment around it, but there's a lot of pain and suffering within it. So I thought it would be interesting to explore the inside behind, behind the closed doors of these households and these lives of kids who went to private school in New York City, he grew up very fast, but had a lot of dysfunction in their home. And to compare it to the more normal lives of kids in America and the kind of compare and contrasting game and for, to ultimately for people to gain a broader sense of compassion, education and understanding of, of, of the lives of these these kids and, and how much pressure we were under and scrutiny and you know a, a, an unhealthy amount of adulthood at such a young age and I thought it was fascinating and they said oh my gosh this sounds incredible you go go can, can you write us a treatment for the movie I mean I had no idea what the word treatment meant I had no idea of course I can. Absolutely I can because I never say no to an opportunity and of course I'll figure it out. So I said, great. Nice to meet you. He said, great. We'll be in touch in, in two weeks and you'll come back in for a meeting. And I thought, I, I left the office, got into my car because I drove at that point between Connecticut and New York myself. And I flipped up my little Motorola cell phone and called up my friend, my friend, Jamie, who I knew she was very good at, she was an amazing writer. She was the valedictorian and she was the school president and she was very smart. And I knew she was very capable of doing outlines and things like that. So I called her up and I said, we need, we need, to, we need to meet immediately. I need your help. 
So we met and we talked about this and she thought the idea was brilliant and we started developing the show together and she's, she helped me write a treatment. And so, so we did. So no, Ali, during your childhood, you were studying acting and you were mm -hmm. able to fight through the acting, but it really wasn't negatively impacting your health. At 13, you went through this theatrical experience that ultimately led you on, on to Broadway and you were able to manage that, but that wasn't negatively impacting your health. Well, I, I was very sick during a lot of that time. You actually, I was go, I had, I had blackout spells. I think I had to go to the emergency room a couple of times. I had a lot of joint pain. There was, I was sick and okay. they didn't know why. And they didn't know what was going on. Now, do you believe that the, for example, let's start, focus on the, on the Broadway or the, the state acting element of your, of your youth. Do you mm -hmm. think that was negatively impacting your, your health? No, I don't. Okay. I think I think that you when you uh, I believe it's very important to exercise the creative part of yourself and to promote as much joy as possible into your mind. Okay, so part of part of the um, of this of the development of this now 13 year old artistic prodigy is to go through this process and give her the creative outlets uh, that she needs. You yeah. then, you then uh, get to the age of 16, you have new creative outlets, you're, you're, you're having more enriching experiences. You, you have a really positive outcome. And now this prodigy has now produced something uh, that probably no other 16 year old had ever produced. But now we have a very different experience, right? Where yes. you're now you're now on MTV, you're now a part of creating a reality TV show, and this experience doesn't seem like it's enriching. This experience doesn't seem like it's actually helpful. Correct. Tell us why you believe that experience is very different than your stage acting experience and then your initial producing experience. Well, first and foremost, there were chaperones when I was younger and in the theater and there were, there was structure, there was direction. There were, there were many different people managing the different parts of producing a play, et cetera. And so you had, it was, there was more organization. More protection. And protection, there was more protection. And with MTV, we know, I was the creator, I was the producer, and I was the star. And at that point, there was no direction, there was no script, there was no, you know, outline for your day. I had to come up with the schedule, the characters, the costumes. I had to show up, I had to show up, I had to book the cars, I had to book the places. I mean, it was a lot, a lot of. Now, there's, there's nothing wrong with that piece of it, because, again, you're a prodigy. This is an outlet. It is enriching. But there is this exploitive element that I think became a part of the MTV experience that you hadn't right. seen before that. So right. talk to us a little bit about how um, the adults that were a part of this were sort of encouraging maybe some bad behavior, were right. editing the, you know, the, yeah. the vast amount of uh, material that was being filmed and how mm -hmm. that impacted you on this life's journey. Well, I, you know, I think that first of all, the, the title of the show was one of the biggest elements to that conversation, to this conversation, because they had assured me that Jamie and I could come up with the title of the show and we, we 
worked endlessly. I mean, we have, she still, I think has the journals. We wrote and wrote and wrote so many different treatments and, and titles for the show. And they scrapped all of them in the middle of filming, let us know that we do not in fact have control over the title of the show and they're gonna call it Rich Girls. This is when I wanted to rip up the contract and run the other way. Because listen, I, I, I grew up in a very specific situation but I did not grow up in a way where you brag about what you have you're, you're modest, you're humble, you're grateful, not, no, not flashy, all of this. And it was completely the opposite. And all of it, the way that they filmed the houses, the cars, the, the dancing, the, everything. I mean, it was, it was so vulgar. And so the opposite of the way that I was raised that, but I had no control anymore. It was the, the cat was out of the bag. Everything was, it was out, it was done. I, I had, it was, there was no containing it anymore. And I had no legal control anymore. And it was devastating. That was devastating. Let's talk about first the short-term effects of Rich Girls. And then we're going to talk about the long-term in, in, in a minute, because I think the title is also going to be significant to the advocacy work that you're doing now. But let's, let's hold that for a second and focus on what's now happening to this young woman who from the age of seven had been managing her Lyme disease and the bacteria and the, the germs in her body pretty well until she now is on the MTV set. She's lost control of the title of, of, of her, um, her reality show. She's lost control of the way it's being portrayed. And now she, of course, is now developing relationships with strangers who are watching her and coming to a conclusion about who she is and right. what her values are based on the way this is now being edited. Yeah. We know that Lyme is an opportunistic disease. We know that when we have immune disrupting events, it's more likely that our body's gonna crash and we're gonna become chronically ill. And it sounds to me that it's this experience, this exploitive experience that resulted in you suffering an immune disrupting event and becoming chronically ill. Share, share with me what your perspective is on that. Well, I've never heard it put that way. And I really appreciate it because I feel like you've just like given me the answer that I've been looking for for a long time. And I've never, ever heard it put that way. I didn't even know that that, and what did it, was it called? An immune disruptive event? Immune, immune disrupting event. So Dr. Wow. Rawls, Dr. Bill Rawls, the author of Unlocking Lyme, talks about immune disrupting events and I mean, how- My parents were getting, so my parents separated, they decided to separate when I was about 13, 14 years old. And- that was huge for our family. That was a very big deal. And I, I moved into New York City at 15 with my dad, separate from my family. And that was the first disruptive event. And I think that I dove so heavily into work and producing because it was the best distraction for me. Um, what, it was great for me because I, I didn't want to deal with the rest of the stuff. But so that was the first disruptive event that I think shook up my system. And then the second one, wow, this is really interesting. This makes a lot of sense. And I never really thought, wow. Yeah, and I was not getting a lot of sleep during the show because I was having to stay up late. And it was just awful. It was just, there, and you know, the eating, you couldn't like, it was just, you grabbed whatever you could and 
Yeah, there's not a lot of sleeping, not a lot of eating healthy, drinking way too much the last year of high school and that summer after graduation, which I don't do well with that. And yeah, it was a lot of disruptive. So Ali, I read the book through the eyes of your father because I'm right. a father and I have four children. And right. what made me so upset about reading the book and the exploitation that I witnessed through reading your brilliantly written story was I just watched you spinning down and spinning down and spinning down and spinning down. Mm -hmm. And, and, and of course now, now all of these opportunistic uh, bacteria are now and viruses. And we now know worms are, are a part of this experience are now attacking your body. And now you crash. And probably, mold, and probably mold also, by the way, let's talk we about that in, as well in Connecticut with a very old house. So yeah, yeah, I was spiraling, 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 spiraling with no parental supervision, really. I mean, my parents, bless their hearts, they were doing the best they could. They also had four children, multiple homes to manage, businesses. My Both of my parents had thriving businesses and it was, and they were going through their own turmoil and their relationship, you know, but, but Ali, you're, you're also a prodigy, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not like you were going to be easy to parent anyway, because your genius brought you to places at 13, at 16, at 17, that most children wouldn't find themselves. And parents don't always have the ability to manage that type of genius, quite frankly. So let's, let's be fair to your parents. You were a very special child that would have been very difficult for any parent under the best of circumstances to enrich. So, you know, they had to let you go. They had to let you go. The problem, of, unfortunately, is that the MTV experience was unhealthy for someone suffering from Lyme disease. And talk about now how the show is now produced. People are now watching the show. You're becoming very well known. But of course, people are now viewing Ali through the lens of this very carefully edited show. How did that cause you to feel about yourself? And how did that cause you to, unfortunately, spin further down, um, you know, the, 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 the tunnel to chronic illness? My self-esteem started taking a toll because I felt I, like I was being portrayed as this um, un, uneducated, ditzy, you know, flimsy girl. And I think since reading and, and math, quite frankly, and, and comprehension in school was a struggle for me, although I was quite intelligent, I was extremely insecure about my abilities in school to begin with. So on top of it to be portrayed as this sort of like, couldn't remember what this was, couldn't remember who that was, was saying stupid shit because I was anxious. Like my dad invented cargo pants, which was just the stupidest thing I've said. And like, you know, just weird things. And I think that it was sort of like, if, you, if I wanted to paint a picture of the worst version of myself that I was so scared of, they did it for me. And I was, I was like, oh, oh my God, like this is, oh my gosh, my, all of my insecurities are true because it was on television, but, but it's not who I truly am. So yeah, no, but, but let's pause there for a second. These folks are following you around and taking thousands of hours yeah. of footage. I know. And then what they're doing is they're cobbling together 
just those pieces that, of course, combined. Those moments made- of like being overtired when you're overtired or when, you know, off camera, there's something else going off off camera that no one else can see that I'm distracted by. It's very. Yeah, you're right. So let's again, think about that for a minute, right? You're a prodigy, but you're being portrayed as a diss. Mm -hmm. You're a humble kid who has certainly had privilege, but not somebody who wears it on a shoulder. But now her show is entitled Rich Girls. I know. You're now interacting with the world, with everybody seeing you that way. And now your Lyme disease takes off. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was meant to be it was meant for me to crash and burn at a young age so i can do greater things in my adulthood and we'll so. get to the transformation but, <laughs> but let's 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 again fully explore the rest of this so now now we get to the scene that we talked about at the beginning of this uh, of this podcast which is you're out of control you're crashing you need help you can't get there yourself and your dad and your mom now have to take charge in a very powerful way. And they bring you someplace to now be isolated from the world and diagnosed and treated. And talk to us about what it was like to be in this hospital setting and what the experiences were like that led you on your healing journey. Well, I was very, very confused as to why I was there. And it was like being in a, in a real nightmare. I, it was like a real nightmare. Um, I was really scared and lonely and angry. And I felt v- deeply misunderstood. And I think that's, that's, you know, a very difficult thing for a human being to go through is being deeply misunderstood. So I was deeply misunderstood with the TV show. I was misunderstood by my parents. I was un- misunderstood by the doctors. And I felt very alone in that, in that point. So, and I had a doctor there who just wanted to totally just drug me and, and make me to shut up. But I was not going to accept that. So I asked to switch to a different doctor. And that's when I met Dr. Ellen Shander. And I'll never forget Ellen walking into the room and like opening up the curtains, she was all in purple and saying, you know, she saw who I was. She saw my soul. She saw my spirit. She saw my mind. She respected me. She understood. And it was like recognizing an old friend after many years. So, So, yeah. So Ali, was it at this point that Lyme disease was brought back on the table in a strong manner to finally get tested for the root cause of all your problems? Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> so walk us through how things continue to sort of go downhill up until that point. Well, you know, by the way, up until that point, I had been to several doctors and I went to doctors at Harvard, Yale, um, different doctors in Connecticut and New York. And I was misdiagnosed with different things like multiple sclerosis, fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis, depression, anxiety, learning disabilities, all of these things. And, you know, Lyme disease was not brought back on the table at that point because what I was going through is so emotional that the physical stuff didn't even matter at that point. It wasn't until after I left the hospital and continued 
seeing Ellen Shander as a, as a therapist and psychiatrist that she started noticing things and I started being more honest with her about my physical ailments and complaints. And she started to say, I think you might have something called Lyme disease. So she was the one that started piecing the dots together. But after I got out of the hospital, because I was so distracted and freaked out about being in the hospital, that that was the only issue at hand to deal with. So when she brought up Lyme disease, was it a surprise to you? Were you thinking, hey, my mom no. already thought about that? We sort of dismissed that already. What was your reaction when, when your therapist brought this up to you? I, I said, no, I know. I, I was like, no, no, no. We, we've been down this road. Like they've, they've tested me for Lyme disease. That they, 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 All of the results have been inconclusive or kind of borderline or the levels haven't been high enough. So they diagnosed me with MS at one point, which we found it wasn't a real thing for me, fibromyalgia. And that's what I was left with was fibromyalgia. And she said, no, no, no. I, I think that we have to retest you. I said, but, but I've been tested for Lyme disease. Why do I, I mean, it, we, we ruled that out. It's, it's fibromyalgia. She said, I, I don't think so. I'm going to send you to another doctor who looks at the blood differently than what the CDC allows. <laughs> So, but Ali, prior to this, did any of your doctors explain to you or your parents that the Lyme disease testing is very inaccurate and no. there could be a potential clinical diagnosis? No. Never. No. No. So Never. your your reaction was, hey, I've been tested, I've been negative, yeah. and you thought it was a definitive test. So you're like, no right. way. Right. It was no way. I mean, one of the doctors that said it might be MS was explaining to us that I did have antibodies but that they were not high enough for, for him to legally say that it was Lyme disease, legally diagnosed as Lyme disease. Therefore, he's defaulting to possible MS or fibromyalgia. Was, was that a subtle way of that doctor trying to give you a nod, do you think, looking back? Like, hey, I can't- Looking back, you know, yeah. You know, I, I, yeah. we've heard that a lot where doctors can't because they're worried for their licenses. Because we've heard, right. I'm sure we've all heard stories of doctors losing their licenses, their credibility, right. et cetera. So right. many doctors sort of low key will say, hey, I can't yeah. officially tell you of Lyme, but you have yeah. antibodies, you're kind of borderline, you may want to look at that. So, you know, do you think that yeah. may have been sort of a tip or a hint, a wink, wink to you and your family at the time? I think so. But I think that we were, you know, not as educated about this disease at that point. And, uh, but you were far more educated than most others during the 90s, you know, for sure. It's, it's, it's true, but I wasn't, un we were not understanding the wink wink. We were more hanging on to, oh my God, it might be multiple sclerosis. And my dad's sister had MS and that's, that was so distracting to us. That was so distracting. That just took up all of our, our, the space in our brains. So we and then didn't think of that. And after you sort of got away from the scare of MS, it became fibromyalgia and you figured it was, this was more of just a, a syndrome that was sort of unknown. And then you kind of lean back on the psychological, it sounds like before getting back to the therapist after the, after the mental institution and getting referred to this, this final doctor. Yeah. Now, who, who was his final doctor? Was it, was it Dr. Phillips that you referred to? So, yeah, so this, so the, the doctor that Ellen Shander sent me to is Dr. Stephen Phillips. And he was the one who, took a very thorough examination and questionnaire. And the, the fear of cold was when he said, do you have a fear of being cold? I was like, nobody knows, like, nobody knows that. Like, I don't, you know, yes, yes, I do. How do you know that? I was so, that was kind of a moment of, oh, wow, this, this guy knows some things. 
And, and then he took the blood and then he came back and called me and was like, oh my God, how have you been surviving? How it is, it was unbelievable to him, I think, at how I had been functioning because of how high my levels were and having Bibesia on top of it. So you, from what I understand, you had one of the worst cases that most doctors have seen. Well, some of them say that. I don't believe that because I know people who like are paralyzed. I, I, I don't, listen, yes, maybe it is. Some doctors say that, yes, it is one of the worst cases that they'd seen, but I like to like live in a little bit more of a, a positive la-la land where I'm like, no, 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 I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> You've seen worse, you know? Talk to us about, I mean, clearly you went to many, many doctors throughout your childhood up until becoming a young yeah. adult. What was that doctor's visit like with Dr. Stephen Phillips compared to your other doctors that you saw prior to that time? Well, I was alone. I was without my parent, a parent. So I went by myself. That was the first unique thing. So I think I felt a little bit more comfortable speaking openly and honestly. And I, he, he also was a very sober and compassionate person. So he, he, I, I felt, I, the other doctors, I felt like they thought I was exaggerating or lying. All the other doctors, I felt like, oh, like here's this, you know, privileged kid complaining about because she just doesn't want to go to gym class or whatever. That's how I felt in the other doctor's offices. And I felt, I felt misunderstood and, and un, disrespected a little bit. So it's interesting. Like I wasn't taken seriously, but he took me seriously being there alone and kind of like taking, I felt like I was taking control of my own situation. So what's interesting is we've heard from a lot of young women that doctors treat them differently and dismiss them because they don't look sick, they're young, yeah. and yeah. because it could just be young, you know, hormonal stress. It could right. just be, you know, maybe our la our last podcast interview was, oh, you could just be pregnant. But I think you right. have an added layer on top of that that you're just a whiny celebrity. It sounds like so totally. you had you had all the cards stacked against you, and you had to find the right doctor to finally listen to you and believe you in what you were yeah. saying. Yeah, and that's probably why I always felt like like a fraud. I was like, well, maybe, you know, maybe I am exaggerating. Maybe I, maybe everyone really just feels like this and I'm just complaining about it, you know? Uh, so yes, he respected my words and he took me seriously. And he really, he really listened to everything I was saying. And he was asking me these, these detailed questions uh, of things that I would never have brought up to a doctor before. Never. One of the one of the signs of a successful doctor patient relationship that we've observed from this podcast is when a doctor spends more than a few minutes or 10 minutes with you to really understand you and your background and mm -hmm. your history. So from a time perspective, was your visit with Dr. Stephen Phillips a lengthier visit compared to your other doctors? Very much so. Extremely lengthy. He was very patient. I did not feel rushed. I felt like he was like, he, I, if I needed to stay there for an extra hour telling him about stuff, he would have stayed with me to listen. And, and that's the same for a lot of the good Lyme doctors that I've met. They're not dismissive. They're not, they don't rush you out. They're not distracted. They're very focused and attentive. And, and I think that that's, that was a huge difference. 
So now talk to us about that moment when you finally have that epiphany and Dr. Dr. Phillips says to you, hey, Allie, you have Lyme and a ton of co-infections and you're really sick and we can finally start to work working on getting you better. What was that like for you emotionally? And just describe that moment for us. It was like the grass. I'm going to get emotional. It was very, very validating and just like a massive sigh of relief. I just was... I was so relieved that I, I felt like I had an answer and that I wasn't, I wasn't exaggerating, that I wasn't crazy, but that like all of the symptoms and night sweats and headaches and pain that I had been through was validated and I had an answer and a diagnosis that I could maybe get better. I was like, oh my God, now I can, I can get better. I can heal. Now I can, you know, get, get this thing behind me and move on with my life, which was the total opposite of what happened. So before we go there, talk to us about what it was like. Now you're independent you're at the doctor's office by yourself and you're going to go home and you're going to share with your family, your mom and your dad, that I have a real diagnosis. I have Lyme and all these co-infections. What was that like for your family to be able to share that moment with them? I don't remember that as clearly, to be very honest with you. I think I remember it as calling them right up or seeing them and rushing. Guess what? Guess what? Oh, my God. The doctor, they took my blood and it, they, it's, it's, it is, in fact, Lyme disease and Vibesia. And I think that they were massively relieved. I mean, my mom cried. I do remember this now. My mother cried. My dad had tears in his eye. I mean, both of them were like very emotional, very relieved. They were just like, oh, honey, like, thank God. And you poor thing. And we're so sorry. And oh my God, what can we do? What, what do we do now? Let's, you know, they're, they're so loving. And so, I mean, they poor, the poor people were so freaked out about this whole experience in the hospital and everything they, you know, so I think that they felt the same way as I did in so a lot of ways. Let's put this in perspective time-wise. How long did it take from the time you got released from the, the psych ward in the, in the hospital that you were in and now seeking therapy with this amazing counselor that you love, getting to Dr. Phillips and getting a positive diagnosis? How long did that time period take? I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I was, I, I don't know. I was in the hospital for like a total of four months, which is great because I didn't want to leave. After I like got used to it and I got into like a little program and they put me in a different place, like a little house that you live with other girls. I, I, I felt, I felt safe there. I felt like I was in a routine. I didn't really want to leave. So I, I kept wanting to extend my stay there and I, I was able, were able to do it. So I, I stayed for four months. <laughs> I probably would have only been there for two, but I just, anyway, so after I left, um, I don't know, maybe like two, two months after I left. So Allie, I personally believe there are many people that have been struggling for years and decades today that are dealing with a mystery illness that likely is Lyme disease and co-infection. So yeah. I also believe that your circumstances are not coincidence that all of your life circumstances leading up to your diagnosis, as weird as it sounds, was a positive thing because you got a diagnosis, which many people don't have today that are suffering from a tick-borne illness. I know. I think that if I hadn't hit that bottom and ended up in a hospital, 
I think I would have just kept managing and kept self-medicating and persevere, you know, plowing through my career and using work also as an, as an escape to, to ignore, you know, it was a great distraction from my mind to not focus on the pain and the discomfort within my physical body. So I, I, I think I would have just plowed through and maybe, but, but, but ultimately I think inevitably I would have always crashed and burned. I think that just is what happens. And, and, and I was lucky that I crashed and burned at a young age, quite frankly, because then I, I could really take the earlier part of my life to start the healing journey and, and become a, awakened in a lot of ways so that I could live in, a, in an adulthood with a bit more knowledge. So talk to us more now about you finally have this epiphany, you're diagnosed, and now you're with one of the leading Lyme doctors, Dr. Stephen Phillips. What treatment protocol do you start on once you get this diagnosis? Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was on uh, amoxicillin, plaquenil, mal malarone yep. for the Bibesia. Um, I think that was it at that point. So were you, were you strictly on, uh, was, there was it? a whole cocktail. There were like so many medicines. And I remember like being, going to the pharmacy and picking them up and like, so, I was so overwhelmed, so confused. Cause you know, you're mentally functioning. My, my neurologically, I was not so great. So I was like, oh gosh, well, how, how do I even schedule this throughout my day? You know, to take all this medicine and what do you take with that? And you can't have dairy with that and da, 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 da. So it was a little overwhelming. It took me about a week until I think I started the medication because I needed to figure out how to organize it. Ali, were these all oral antibiotics and, you know- Yes, and, thank God. Okay. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So you went on a cocktail essentially of, yeah. of this anti-malaria medication, which is really used for Babesia. You went on antibiotics and probably some other supplements and a whole bunch of other things. How long were you on these, these drugs for? Oh my God. I think about nine months almost. And, so, and also, the, the, I didn't know the, the malarone causes depression also. That's a really important tip for everybody listening that they need to look carefully and explore the side effects of their medications with their doctors. Many people don't experience some of these side effects, but it's important to be aware. So in case you do have a change in your mood or your physical health, yeah. that you can correlate it back to these drugs, especially when you're on so many, right? And, and right. that's not done often enough, I feel, in the Lyme community. There's also a huge element that we're missing here, which is the number one thing that I tell everybody, no matter what, first, when they're starting the Lyme treatments, especially with antibiotics, is learn how to take acidophilus properly. It must be refrigerated in a glass bottle, preferably not in the plastic bottles, live multi-billion cultured, a culture like multi-billion cultured antibiotics refrigerated in a glass bottle to be taken without food in between the doses. If you can get that down, then you're gonna be pretty much okay-ish. But I was so destroyed after seven years of being on a variant cocktail of antibiotics and pharmaceuticals that it just destroyed my system so greatly. 
because I didn't know how to support my body holistically in conjunction with the pharmaceutical. So before, before we get on the whole sick merry-go-round that you talk about in your book, can you just describe for our listeners what what is this, right? So are you describing a probiotic right. so you, that, you, that you're going to well, take with you? Because, you know, you, you're using very high-level words. I just want to make sure everybody understands this really powerful tip that you just gave to our okay. audience. So, so when you're, when you're, when you're, I call it the Israeli army, when you're bringing an Israeli army of medications and antibiotics into your system, there is going to be some depleted down, <laughs> there's going to be attacks that you don't want it to attack. And so acidophilus is really the long scientific word for probiotics, the good bacteria. So, so you're, you're, you're going in with the Israeli army to take out the bad bacteria, when in fact it takes out all the bacteria. So it's killing the woman and children also. So we want to bring in the probiotics, the good bacteria into your system so that way your body can function at a normal level. If, if you go in and without the probiotics and take out all the bacteria, you're going to be stuck with a very, very sick person again at the end. And this is such an important tip that I personally didn't have that knowledge. And I received IV antibiotics and didn't address any of those things. And I right. feel it really had a negative impact on my, on my healing journey. So that's a really important tip for everybody listening. Yeah. But another follow-up question is, in addition to treating with just Dr. Phillips, I think you had a whole team of doctors, almost 12 doctors in well, total at this point, right? Because yeah, I went from Phillips to another doctor to another, because what I, what I would do is I would do the treatment. I would get, you know, when you, by the way, when you, when you start taking these medications, if you're in fact sick with Lyme or Bibes or a co-infection, your symptoms flare up quite significantly. And that's something called a Herxheimer. And I did not know, I was like, oh, freaking out. Like, why am I getting more sick? Why am I getting fevers? Nights, the night sweats were worse. The joint pain was worse. The fatigue was way worse. And I was like, whoa, I am not getting better. I am getting worse. And they were like, no, 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 that's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's confirming that you're in fact infected with Lyme disease. And this is, a, this is your body saying, yes, I do. And thank you for starting to heal but it really makes you feel like you've been trampled with like 10, 18 wheelers. It's not, you know, it's not a uh, fun experience. So after the Herxheimer, which can last up to two months for some people, you start to level up and you start to feel better and you keep taking the, kept taking the antibiotics and kept feeling better and stronger and stronger. And I thought, Oh my gosh, I, I'm better. You wake up one day, you think, gosh, I think I, I think I'm better. So I would say, great, I don't need these anymore. I can go back to work now. And I'd say, no more, no more medicine. I'm done. They say, okay, you're, you know, you're good. It looks, it seems like the treatment has worked. And then I would come to relapse a few months later. And that's when I'd say, okay, well, maybe I need to see a different doctor. Maybe his treatment, treatment will work better. So I went from doctor to doctor in that way, but, but I did all everybody's treatments thoroughly. I really did. I did. Ev and I think that's very important to not doctor hop and mix them all together, but actually stick to one protocol, see it to the end and really follow the directions very thoroughly and give it like a real good shot. And then after that, if you want to see somebody else, but I, so you, I did stick to their things. 
So you followed through with these protocols. Oh, but yeah. from And again, from your book, and it's not uncommon, you got diagnosed when you were 19, you started treating around the time you were 20, and you said pretty much for your entire 20s, every summer you were bed bound because you would have the cycle where you treat you would treat in the in the fall, I believe, right? And then you would mm-hmm. get a little bit better in the, in the in the winter and the spring, and then you would you'd kind of go back, run a business, be super aggressive with your lifestyle again, and then get sick every summer and had that cyclical sort of illness you called it, I think the the sick merry-go-round for almost seven years. So mm-hmm. at that point, you just had to sort of bounce around from doctor to doctor to doctor every season almost to get better. It sounds like. Yeah, that's right. So. So what were these doctors saying? I mean, on the second and third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and the seventh time, but you said, hey, look, this is, this is becoming a pattern. Why is this happening? What were they saying to you why you were having the cyclical pattern on an annual basis with your, with your flare-ups and then ultimately your relapses to put you bed-bound every summer? I don't really think they said anything. I, I don't remember. I don't, I don't remember. They, I, I think they just said, okay, let's try something different. You know, I think that they said, they also said that I was so, because I was so sick for so long untreated, you know, I was, I had Lyme disease and Vibesia attacking my body, attacking my mitochondria, attacking my cells, attacking my brain, my heart, my lungs, my stomach, my joints for 12 years straight, completely untreated that it was no wonder why it was taking a few times and it was no wonder why this was more complicated than most because, you know, you can't just expect for one treatment to heal 12 years of damage. But let's focus on that, Ali, because I feel like you just hit on something really powerful. You were sick for so long. Yeah. And it, created, it created system-wide damage to your body at your cellular level at the mitochondrial level and even at your nerve your your nerve level probably which takes years for those things to repair themselves even after successful treatment for an illness so do you think that you you know in hindsight looking back you did these treatments for let's say six seven months then you start to feel better and you jump right back into normal life that you needed to sort of gradually give your, your body time to heal and slowly introduce yourself back into normal life. And that would have been a better way to reintroduce a healthy lifestyle and maybe prevented you from having a seven yeah. year sick merry-go-round. Yeah. I think that, you know, yes, I'm a very ambitious person and, and I like to be very productive. Um, so yes, I think that the, the stress, it definitely flares, flares me up. And we see this all the time where people just, they want to get better. And, and we oh. see this just this past week where people are like, I'm getting better. I'm going to go back. I'm going to be a nurse. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be this. I'm going to work 13 hour shifts. And I'm like, yeah. whoa, 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 whoa. I'm hey. still like this, by the way. I still struggle with this. I really do. It's such a thing. Um, and and I, I, I don't, I mean, I don't know what the solution is. I, I really just, except for it is not me. It's, it's totally insane. Well, you know, Ali, you found the solution. We're going to get to that. <laughs> You're living the solution right now. And we're going to get to that. So I can't wait to get to that part of the story. We're almost there. Oh my God. So, I mean, you, you know, this is really an important tip to say, be kind when you, and we've seen this with so many people where oh, they start please. to feel better and they jump back into full 24 no, no. seven New, right. you know, New York city lifestyle. And then you yeah. crash, right? You can't yeah, do that. Totally crash. You have to really slow your roll and really treat yourself with kid, kid gloves for a while after and be very 
you know, prudent with your time management and your sleep and your diet and be very kind and nurturing and nourishing to yourself. But I think that there's this thing of, oh my God, I've missed out on my life because I've been in bed for five years. So I want to go out and do everything. I mean, of course we feel like that, but you know, moderation, but who the heck knows how to do moderation when you've, it's everything's been stripped from you. It's very challenging. And that includes, as you noted, your, you know, your stress levels, your sleep, your diet, all yeah. those things are contributing factors. And I think once again, here you are now in your late twenties and, and your father sees what's going on. And he says, Hey, Ali, we got to do something different here. Yeah. And then he then refocuses you from, from what I'll call Western medicine to a more traditional approach. So talk to us about that pivot from this, this sick merry-go-round, the seven-year window to your dad getting involved again and helping right. you really navigate you to a better path to healing. Well, at that point was my kind of second lowest point in a way, because I turned around and I said, listen, I'm sick again, but I I can't go through this anymore. I I can't, I cannot like go to a new doctor, get a whole other protocol, get the Herxheimer flare up again. I just, I'm done. I'm either going to live like this for the rest of my life or just, I don't, And again, it wasn't like suicidal. It was just like defeated. I was just like, I don't know what, I don't think I can live like this anymore. Is this what my life is going to be like? I'm never going to be able to have kids or a normal life or a family. Like I I just, and he was like, wait, wait, wait. Like there, we haven't done one. We haven't done the Chinese medicine or the home. And I just thought, oh, I'm so tired of this. I'm not like an experiment. I'm just so, I did not have any motivation. I really didn't. So that was a really low point of thinking this is going to be my life for my whole life. And what what, the hell am I going to (laughs) do? Now, if it weren't for your dad, would you have, did your dad have to sort of strongly encourage you to go seek this Chinese medicine? Because as, he as, brought me to the doctor. He, he found the doctor. He brought me to the doctor. So, but as a New Yorker and as a Westerner, we typically, I feel like, are brought up thinking Chinese medicine is sort of this woo-woo medicine, and we need to rely on more, you know, pharmaceutical yeah. type treatments. Did you have that same mentality of, no. I tried all this, you did not? Okay. No, 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 because my no, because we knew a lot of, you know, very intelligent people in New York City, intellectuals who were strong believers in Eastern medicine. And we grew up with astrology. My mother studied astrology and always had astrologers around guiding the, my dad's business, etc. So Eastern medicine was, was always, and my dad, and we had many people who we trusted who really swore by Eastern cultures, Indian, because he had a lot of Indian partners and Chinese partners, and they all swore by the Indian Ayurvedic medicine methods as well as the Chinese medicine. So we we were we were we trusted that because they've been around for way longer than Western medicine has been around. So we trusted it. We trusted that a lot. Uh, but we just I just knew that it was more involved. So your hesitancy wasn't that you didn't believe in it. It was you just you were burnt no, out. You seven years of hell and you were done. No, I know how I know how many how many herbs and tinctures and you know how involved the homeopathic or alternative 
natural road is and, and, and it's very involved and it's very complex and you get an even larger satchel of treatments to come home with. And I knew that, and I knew it would take a longer time because it just does. And I was just, did not feel like any of it at all, but I did it. So I'm gonna now ask you the same question, but in a different way. Now you're going from all these Western doctors and then a different experience with Dr. Phillips to now a Western, uh, to an Eastern, Eastern Chinese doctor. Well, we thought, gosh, I've been through all these, all these West, Western doctors, you know, th th their treatments aren't working. I've yep. got the IV for nine months in my heart. You know, I did the whole thing. So Ali, before we get into the Chinese medicine, I just want to focus on many people come to us and say, I've been on oral antibiotics. I'm not having success. I'm considering IV antibiotics. And for some people that works, for some people it doesn't with chronic Lyme and everybody has different opinions. But for you personally, do you feel it was worthwhile to do the IV Rocephin antibiotics yeah. after the oral antibiotics before you eventually pivoted over to Chinese medicine? Okay. I, you know, I can't give really a clear answer with that one, but I do know that the IV antibiotic antibiotics after that treatment was the best, was the like, was the healthiest, you know, quote unquote healthy, was the best I'd ever been after any treatment. And it sustained me for the longest. So I was, I was well after the IV treatments for the longest amount of time. I think it really went in and, 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 and did a lot of work, but I think that I was left with a lot of damage from the many years of antibiotics, from the IV Rocephin, from the 12 years that, you know, I needed ultimately, no matter what, I needed the, the more alternative methods to be able to fully and wholly heal my system. I'm going to ask you a very hard question here, but looking back, would you have skipped the IV antibiotics and went right to Chinese medicine? Or would you have done the, the IV antibiotics and Chinese medicine? I would have done both at the same time. That is probably the best answer I think you could have given us because that seems to be what the studies are showing is the best yeah. way to tackle these diseases. Yep. So, I would totally do combine the two fully from the get-go and add in meditation and I mean, Cambo. <laughs> Let's talk about Cambo. So yeah. first we've had combo, one other guest. Combo, uh, combo, combo. Combo is a combo. 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 And, 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 you know, we get, you know, it's frog poison. It's this, it's that. We have one other yeah. guest lightly talk about it, but oh, offline yeah. we've had many people tell us they've had great success with it, but it's sort of this, yeah. like, it has a really bad reputation out there. So tell us what it is and, and have you tried it and has it helped you? Yeah. So combo is, it's from a frog. It is the poison from a frog. It's a very ancient method of healing. Um, and it basically, it's a very intelligent medicine, if you will. It really, it really is. It's so intelligent that it goes to places in your body that you didn't even know needed to be healed. And it goes basically inside of every single cell and essentially scrubs it and, and cleans it out so thoroughly I mean, listen, the process of the treatment is, is a little brutal. You know, you have to detox and, uh, and um, fast for a little while before you, they, you know, there, there's a whole ceremony where you have, a, I would hope, a shaman there, which is, I think that's what freaks people out is the woo-woo side of that, but it just is what it is. 
and you have to be burned in certain parts of your body and they press the poison into the open wombs and you vomit profusely but you kind of get go into this strange state of euphoria and heat you you feel your body heating up very much and you go through this sort of almost euphoric out of it sensation and then you you vomit the bile essentially i mean it's not pleasant it's it's very intense but it's very extremely effective and there are many people who are willing to do things like that even though they may be uncomfortable yeah. you know while doing it if they're going to have a positive benefit health wise yeah. so did did it help you with your symptom and in healing from Lyme disease you feel was that a, was that a, a key factor in your healing journey I didn't do I didn't do the cambo treatments until much later I did I didn't do the cambo treatments until about a couple of years ago actually when I was all better as far as I knew from Lyme disease. I was all, I was fine. I didn't really need anything. And then there was like, you know, so I was like, oh, I'm feeling a little like limey, you know? And I, my husband was like, well, let's, let's see what we're going to do. So, and this, this, and we met with a, a business partner of ours actually. And he suggested Cambo treats. And I was like, oh boy, I don't know if I'm brave enough to do that. You know, I was very, but then after a couple of months of researching it and talking to a few people, I heard it was the most effective thing in the world and, and also for other traumas. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I have been through other traumatic things in, in my life that I knew needed healing. And so I thought, well, okay, let's just, we'll, we'll see if, if, if I want to do it. And it was wild. I we met with the shaman and his team and spoke to him about everything and made the appointment. And I swear to God, I don't know what came over me or why this happened. I would have crawled on a highway to get to the appointment. It was like my spirit, my soul was so drawn to this experience that I I just, there was like, I like knew I needed to have this and I would have gone to any lengths to get there. I don't know why it was like, I was like out of control. I was like, I'll do anything and go. So, so let's talk about that, that intuition, or as you said, you were feeling a little limey. You started Mm -hmm. to learn how to read your body and and Mm -hmm. listen to signals that your body was giving you and Mm -hmm. respond to them before you got to a point where you were really sick. Right. So even when you were even earlier on in your journey, it sounds like you started to learn how to listen to your body and, and hear your body. Many people always ask, well, how do you do that? How do you know? Is this just anxiety? Is it really the, is it my illness? Is it just, you know, so, so if you can give some advice to our listeners, how do you best listen to your body and have that intuition to know that you need to do something based on a sign your body is telling you? Well, I think the the meditation practice and journaling, really being pretty vigilant about journaling and meditation, and if you can have access to a therapist, or a counselor, it's very very healthy and very helpful for you to learn how to form a relationship with yourself and start being more cognitive and self-aware and honest with yourself about how you're feeling. So I I think those three elements are incredibly impactful and very simple. They're not 
you know, that complicated. It's, it's very easy. It's, you know, meditation is for free. You can do it anywhere. You can, somebody say you can meditate on the top of a garbage heap in the middle of a concert. It doesn't matter. You know, so, you just have to show up and do it. So Ellie, to circle back to the Chinese doctor and when your dad basically forced you to go to see this, this Eastern doctor, talk to us about what that experience was like and what treatment came out of that doctor's appointment. Well, he, he didn't really force me. I mean, he, he had had some experience with this doctor and I saw, I saw the benefits of his treatments with them. So I, I did surrender to it and I, and I became willing, you know, willing to go. So we went together with, with my mom, actually, the three of us. And he was funny. I mean, it was a funny experience because you're not going to like a, nor- it wasn't like a normal doctor's office. I think it was like in his, in his house, in an office in his house. And he looked at my tongue, he looked at my eyes, he looked at my nails, he took my pulse and there was no medical equipment. And I, which I thought was kind of cool, actually. I, I thought it was kind of interesting. And at this point I just felt, I thought, well, you know, yeah, sure, I'll do it I'll take it. You want, you want me to take, you know, raw garlic pills? I'll do it, like whatever, I'll do it. So I know I was sent with a whole barrel of, herbs and things and treatments and my mom agreed to go down to the Caribbean with me to start the the protocol and you know I was a little overwhelmed by it I was a little anxious about it because it was so many herbs and so many teas and like you know take drink this tea at this time and this tea and that time that like it was like my full-time job and I just wasn't looking forward to it flaring me up. And I didn't, I didn't really want to go through another flare up, which is why like any, if, if I had to go, that's why I'm like so hesitant to do any treatments even now for anything. Cause I just don't want to deal with the flare ups, but I did it and it, I, we got through it. And Ali, you're not alone in that, but, but in addition to you, all these herbals and these teas and all these supplements, did the Chinese doctor also have you other things pertaining to your stress levels, your sleep, your diet, et cetera, that had a positive impact on your healing journey? Well, at that point, I, I, I was, did not fully understand the rest of it, or I was not willing to like commit to all of that. I, I think I was a 24, 23 or 24 years old at that point. I don't remember. I don't know. I think it was 20, 23, 24 years old. And so I was like, I'll give this a try, but I wasn't super like motivated about it. So we did the treatments. I was really sick for a while, started getting better after six months, came back, started working again, (laughs) didn't continue taking the herbs had another relapse. And that's when I made a very full and conscious decision to take control over my health and my life. And that's when I became completely and utterly willing to go to any lengths. And I had this, like any length to really get better. And I, I, I really wanted to get fully better. So that that, what did that look like for you? So now you finally were fully committed to, to this Chinese medicine healing modality. Well, what did that look I, like? I wasn't committed to it. No, I wasn't no. committed to it. I, I just, I just, I did it for six months. I just did it. 
I did it in a, in a more removed way. I just took what they told me to take and I was just pissed off that this was going to be my existence. And I was, I was an, I'm an artist, you know, I was painting at the time. So I was making these cool paintings. I couldn't sleep at all. So I, I had, I got Ambien and I, I would stay awake on the Ambien. It didn't put me to sleep, but the opposite, it like gave me energy and I would go and I would paint these like wild paintings. Those people like use it as a drug, I guess, and not for sleeping. <laughs> as like a fun recreational drug and I was like oh this is great and like it it brought the creativity up like I wasn't committed to like Chinese I wasn't committed to the Chinese herbs I wasn't committed to like wasn't really into meditating as much back then I was just sort of managing and going through the motions and sick of being sick and just waiting to kind of feel better so I could keep working so you were basically pissed off, mad, and, and were doing what you were told, but you weren't committed to the whole was, philosophy of, of full body healing. Yeah, I was like discouraged. I was a little depressed. I just wanted to be a normal 20-something-year-old and paint and have energy and like date guys and, you know, do the, but I, I was so, I mean, I had like a couple of relationships and I just like broke them off because I was like, you're not going to want to deal with this. So <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to go to the Caribbean real quick and uh, take a bunch of smelly herbs and I'm really not so happy about this. <laughs> and all of your feelings are totally justified and anybody in the world would experience those same frustrations you had as a, as a 20 something year old, just wanting to be healthy, happy and live your life, right? Yeah, I, mean, I was 23 years old. I mean, can you imagine? So... You know, you know, at this point you had the, you took the herbals, you got a little better, you relapsed, you're taking the herbals again. Now you're taking the ambient, you're not sleeping, which is probably really not good for you, right? What happened no, after then that? I was, then I would fall asleep and just sleep and nap all day. I mean, I was kind of, I think I was just depressed, honestly, also at that point. And I think I was a little depressed. So walk us through the next steps. Where, where does your life journey take you after this? Do you have another relapse? Do you start to adopt more Western, uh, I'm sorry, Chinese medicine? What happens from this point forward? Yeah, I go back to New York. I think I had a couple of of art shows. And I just wanted to live my life at that point. You know, I just didn't want to be sick anymore. So I just tried to like live as a normal person and it did not work out for me. <laughs> I got sick again. And that was a huge moment in my life where I was... That was, that was a huge moment of, do I want to die and not live my life anymore? Which I wasn't like feeling that. I wasn't like, I, like I said, I've never been suicidal. It wasn't like dark like that. It was just like more of a pragmatic thing yeah. of, I can't live my life like this anymore. So I either choose to like not live my life because this is just fucking pointless and I can't stand it anymore. And I don't know how, what that's going to look like, but I'll figure it out. Or am I going to like pull my boots up and get on with it and actually like really commit to healing myself once and for all and fully. And I have a very strong will to live. And I wanted to do a lot of stuff in the world. So I chose the latter and I found this incredible German doctor, Dr. Thomas Schultz of Manhattan Advanced Medicine. And I heard from several different people from different sources that this guy was amazing, that this center was incredible. And I was like, okay, this is what it is. This is my next 
thing. And I think this is going to be like the once and for all thing. And I, I prepared myself this time. I called my cousin. I, ha- I mean, bless her heart. She dropped her life and came and lived with me in New York to take care of me because I knew I needed the support. And I was like, really, really committed to doing this because I just did not want to go through any of this again. And I really took it very seriously. I was on a very intense detox diet. I hate needles, but I did needle injection, homeopathic needle injections. I took the herbs and the drops and everything. And I put them on an altar and meditate, meditated with them. I prayed. I mean, I did everything. I really like fully committed to this program and I had never felt better in my life. I mean, I got really sick and I like, got, it's like the detox, like I gained a bunch of weight and it was, everything was crazy. But then I leveled out after six or seven months, started to level out a little bit and like had never felt better, never felt better. And of course, again, I had all of these opportunities to start producing people's fashion shows and styling and all of these things. And so I started working again, but I was very vigilant about sleeping and meditating and taking care of myself and diet. So I was able to manage through that. And then my dad said, why don't you start your own clothing line? And I said, yes, absolutely. I can. I'm well again. I can do this. Started doing that. And by the way, this is over the course of two years. I was doing well. And, but then when you're running your own company and in the fashion business, balancing all of wellness is very challenging to do. And of course I was like, I'm going to, I want to change the fashion industry to become more well and holistic and healthy. And we're going to take meditation breaks and, you know, that can't happen every day. (laughs) So it, it was, it was, um, that protocol, though, that the, the, the German homeopathic treatment and detoxing was probably the, the most thorough, thorough form of treatments I, I'd ever done and the most committed I had ever been. It was the most effective, essentially. So I'm almost afraid to ask this question. And I'm pretty sure I know the answer from from just doing our, our background research on you. But tell us what happens now. You're two years in. You're doing well, you're managing your stress, you're sleeping well, you're fully committed to this protocol, but you're also doing too much, just to be frank about it. You're running a business, you're just, you're taking on too much in life. Mm-hmm. What, what happens next? Right, start the business. I meet my now husband. I was 25. Can't believe that. I was 25. Met my Steve, my husband now, and um, I was falling in love and happy and really at like the top of my game with my business. I was so proud of the shows that I was doing and it was, it was really going very, very well. And in the spring, it was around March when I just had way too much on my plate. It was just too many things. And I remember having like two laptops opened up two notebooks. I mean, it was like, I couldn't know. I didn't know what to do first. And I, and I crashed and my brain, my brain, it was like, it was like an on, an on switch had been on and sustainably well for two years. 
And then all of a sudden sitting at my desk, it went off. And that moment was, oh yeah, just awful. Just so scary and so devastating for me. I cried more writing my book about that moment and about having to close that my clothing business and having to stop everything. I cried more writing, writing that in my book than anything else. And I still, I still really, I don't know why it upsets me so much. But it really, oh, that was really hard. Thank you, Ali, for being so open and, and raw and sharing this with us because we totally understand and we can't thank you enough for just being so true and open and honest and sharing your journey and every part of your Lyme journey with us. Yeah, I mean, I think that the way that I've gotten through so many of these times, to be very honest with you, and I, the, the way that I was able to get this through this next part of my story was two things. One was is love. Um, which is what I believe God is and love, the love that I felt from my husband, from my partner and the love that I learned to have for myself. And then the love that grew within me for other people suffering. And that, <clears throat> my, I dedicated my the next part of my healing journey to other people who were sick at that point. I dedicated my healing to other people in the future and at that moment who were sick and suffering because I thought, okay, I'm not gonna do this for myself anymore. I'm gonna get better for other people to help them. So now I'm gonna commit myself to going to any lengths once again and trying everything so that I can share. Cause I believe at that, that point I was like, I have to, I have to have, I have to have some other goal. To, to get well and it was it was to share it was to share my experience and to help help people at that point and that was that transformative thing that happened and I thought okay now this is my mission now this is my goal and my and and that was the catalyst that was the motivator that was the engine that brought me to continuing the healing path because as you can see I mean how disheartening it would have it was to have to do it again. 
and that the other everyone's sick and everyone's sick now like you are the people who helped me get through that part of my life and that's what I said I want to have a book I would like to have a talk show one day I would like to commit myself to getting better so that I can help and at this time, Ali, you were sick for almost 20 years of your life and you thought you were better. So it's totally understandable why it would become such an emotional moment when you're two years in remission and healthy and then you have all of a sudden a relapse and you become sick again. So that- Gosh, and I was like doing so well. I was like at the top of, you know, top of the world. And it's just- So you, you, you mentioned this in your book and you also mentioned it in some other interviews that we watched with you where you talk about, you don't have to be in remission or even halfway there to be able to help other people. You can be in the throes of Lyme and still help other people in the community, which I found so powerful because many yeah. people don't think that they have anything to offer to help other people. Well, you so have you more talk- to offer than any other, any doctor does. <laughs> so, so please talk more about that because I want to encourage people who are listening to this episode that even if you're in the throes of Lyme and you're at your sickest, you can still help other people. And it's that community and that network that's going to help all of us get through this and ultimately influence change in the Lyme community. Absolutely. So, I I mean, I really do believe that the most sustainable way of healing and supporting yourself through, through the healing process is to connect to others and to actually share your wisdom and your hope with another person it builds your own strength it's sort of it's it's like building blocks like every time I call and say hey how are you doing do you need do you need any help today or how how are you feeling today and you know I found this really great you know juice from South America that helps and sharing that it kind of like it's like a booster it really boosts you up so so I think there's also a, a psychological, and by psychological, I mean a chemical yeah. reaction that occurs, right? When you're helping other people, your brain, and to keep it simple, is going to be generating these feel-good chemicals, and you're going to yeah. have a, a, a positive flood of emotions because you're helping others even when you're sick. Right. And those chemicals and the, those emotions are going to help you heal quicker than, than you would if you weren't helping others or if you were stuck in a negative mindset, right? So I think that's part of this whole sort yeah. of helping each other when you're, even when you're at your worst, where you can it's have a positive impact. It's nature's form of antidepressant, except for the cold showers too. <laughs> but that that I, I really do. I think that it's it's like a, tra- a chain effect, and I do believe that if you are, are aware of this of this model and use it, you you really can help yourself quite quite greatly and help other people at the same time. It's like a win win. So, Ali, talk to us more about while you were doing all this this help in the Lyme community and you were helping others in the community, what was your treatment protocol now after this, this relapse that you had and you really had this epiphany of I'm going to help others while getting better. What were you doing to get better at this time? That's when I turned, we, Steve and I watched a documentary on Ayurvedic medicine because when I shut down, when my switch, my little switch went off on the off, I was really freaking out. I was really freaked out. And I went to one of my, a Reiki healer and she calmed me down in this middle of a panic attack I was having with Ayurvedic methods, with an Ayurvedic solution. She came into my kitchen and cooked it on the stove. She did ghee, ghee with warm milk, cardamom and cinnamon 
and gave it to me to drink and it just <sighs> calmed me down. And she said, yeah, Ayurvedic medicine is an incredible thing. So Steve and I watched a documentary and that night, <clears throat> I remember afterwards, I said, you know, I think that Ayurvedic treatments are gonna be the next phase. And I think it's gonna be really helpful for me. So I called the doctor in the documentary the next morning and they called me back and I made an appointment to go see him. And he said, I really do. I think I can help you. There's some people that come here that I don't think that I'll help. And I kind of just send them on their way. But I think that you, I think, you, you know, you have a very complicated case. It is very, very going to be a little difficult and it's, it's more complex than most, but I think that there is hope let's, let's do this. So I said, okay, let's do it. And I was excited. I was, I was going to, I went to his, uh, he had a, a Pancha Karma, which is a seasonal Indian detox program where you stay at the first five to seven days near the solstice and you do yoga, meditation, detox diet, treatments, herbs, enemas, massages, shiradara with the oil and the third eye i mean you do all sorts of things and it's very 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 beautiful and emotional and healing and i learned so much and got so much out of that panchakarma experience that it really got me over a huge huge hump a huge hurdle that i was in the middle of so yeah, I, I, Ayurvedic medicine has gotten me through a lot, even now. And I, I did my pregnancy and postpartum Ayurvedically as well. So talk to us more about your husband, Steve. So he met you when you were healthy and you were running your business and you weren't sick and then you crashed. He didn't know the sick alley. So what did you do? Because clearly something <laughs> you did, Ali, you, you, have a, you have a lot to be proud of here because the majority of people that we speak to, probably 99% of them, if not more, who are in relationships when they get sick, those relationships don't last. Your relationship not only lasted, he's now your husband and you have a beautiful child. So tell us what you did and how you communicated with your, your, your now husband at the time to keep that relationship strong and going, even when you were at your worst. God, I, I he's, he's my twin flame, my soulmate. And, uh, you know, I warned him when we first got together. It was like, my, I've got a big, loud, wild family and I have, have this illness. And are you sure you want to get into this? And he, uh, I mean, gosh, I, I mean, what the, I remember what, once I, I came home, came home after being sick. We were, we had been together at that point for about a year and a half, a year and a few months. And this is right when I had the relapse. I was so embarrassed and I couldn't remember. I remember I rode my bike everywhere. I rode my bike to work. I rode my bike everywhere. And I, I couldn't remember the code to unlock my bike and I was just it really that really scared me because it was my birthday and I came home and he met me at home and I was on the phone with Ellen Shander being like it's this I, this is gone this is I'm, I'm sick again 
And she was like, well, have you been eating the right things? And I was just so angry and so fed up that I threw my cell phone across the room. And I was like, oh boy, that's, that's not good. And I was a little embarrassed that he like saw that, right? But I, that's just what happened. I was so angry. And um, he just stuck with me. I don't know. I mean, I, I think just being open and, and all really grateful and really, um, I think that if you, I verbally thanked him a lot for being so patient and acknowledged his patience and acknowledged his steadfastness. And I was always, I was also as attentive as I could be with his needs, which, which took work. And I think that, um, I don't know. I think he, I guess he just, he loved me enough <laughs> and I loved my, I loved myself enough. No, I but, think but there, there were moments where, you know, it was just like, oh yeah, yeah, this is, this is tough. <laughs> so like with any relationship, but I, I just want to give you, I don't think you're being fair to yourself to give yourself enough credit that you were so sick yet you put enough energy and, and emotion into sustaining that relationship, which is a very difficult thing to do. So, you know, as much as you guys, you know, are probably you complement each other very well, it must have been very difficult to maintain a romantic relationship while being so sick and having to communicate and talk when you're just so not well. So that that's a really, I think, powerful thing for the community here that, that you can still have love while being chronically sick with Lyme disease yeah. and you can get through it and you can you can you can be healthy, you can right. have a successful relationship, you can have children. And you can have a normal life like you are now. And I think that's such an inspiration to everybody listening to this, this podcast episode. So I do want to jump ahead a little bit now. So you you mentioned that you're using Ayurvedic medicine and you're having great success. You're starting to claw your way back up out of this, this major relapse you had with your husband's help and support and your family's help and support. So walk us through what happens from that time period when you're now adopting Ayurvedic medicine and between that point and when you then got pregnant with your now daughter. Right. So I, I did the Ayurvedic medicine along with a couple of other homeopathic treatments with another doctor. And I did mix both protocols. I did mix the Ayurvedic protocols with the homeopathic protocols, which was very effective. And um, we moved after I closed my company, we moved back down to the Caribbean for a little while together. He was able to work remotely from there. And we set up an art, we set up an art studio and, and painted every day and meditated every day. And I really thought about what I wanted my life to look like. So I started writing down what I wanted my life to look like and how I wanted to function in the world. And I really, really wanted to have a child. And I really wanted to be a mother, I really wanted to be a mother and have a child with Steve and be healthy and live in a place and in an environment that was sustainable. And that's when I decided I probably couldn't live in New York anymore, which was an interesting transition because then the week after I stated out loud, I don't think I can live, I don't think that I can go back to New York City after this. He got a job offer in LA. And I said, that's where we're going. <laughs> so we moved cross country and moved to LA and Again, set up an art studio there and painted and he was doing his work and we he was working with Skrillex with Sonny at the time and we went on a 
tour with Skrillex through Japan. And that's where we conceived Harley. So, Ali, on that note, so many people reach out all the time about concerns right. pertaining oh, to yeah. having a child. Well, when I didn't you have know a I was going to get disease. pregnant, by the way. Oh, it wasn't planned. Okay. No, so, I so, did right. not know. so once you realize you were pregnant, what fears or, oh. or lack thereof did you have about passing Lyme disease on to your now daughter, Harley? Everything, everything. I was so freaked out. I was so freaked out. I was so, I, I, by the way, there, there was a Korean doctor with whom I was, I was planning on getting stem cell therapy from just because my dad had heard about him. And he was like, listen, just to like completely make sure 1000% that Lyme isn't in your body, just go and see this doctor and like maybe do a treatment since you're pretty, pretty well right now after all the homeopathics and you've I really worked very hard in building my system back up from the years of damage from the antibiotics. Now you're healthy now. Why don't you do the stem cell treatment? That way you can just really boost yourself. So I had this appointment and like two weeks before the appointment, I found out I was pregnant and I was like, Oh, I was like really nervous. And I call, I was calling all my doctors being like, do you think this is safe? Do you think this is okay? And you know, and they said, no, no, I think you're actually pretty healed and like in a good place. You're not, you don't have acute Lyme, which is when it can really be passed down to the child. Um, I think you're, you're healed enough. Let's, so I went to the Korean doctor. He took blood because he, again, can look into the blood way better than most American doctors are allowed to. And he came back with the results and he said, wow, like you have done a lot of work I can see and it's really paid off and you're you're really okay. You're Lyme free, totally Lyme free. You're very you're healthier than most people. You're gonna be fine. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I wanted to say that if people are currently sick with Lyme, it I think it's your opinion and your living proof that yes. if you can get your Lyme into remission and you yes. can successfully you know, battle this disease and, and ultimately dominate it, then right. you can have a child Lyme free and not have to worry about giving Lyme to your child congenitally. Correct. And I've still been, you know, I've still been, cons I've, I've always, you know, as soon as I had the baby and ha had our daughter and even through like, I'm always, I, like, when we do, if we have to do blood work, I'm like, can you just add the Lyme, can you please just add the Lyme? Lyme disease thing on there so we can just double check double check that she's okay just because I, I you know you never know and she's totally healthy I mean I'll tell you this child is as strong as an ox <laughs> and Harley's <laughs> now she's six years old had she's numerous six. Lyme tests done and never tested positive so you're living proof that you can have a child after mm -hmm. Lyme and not have to worry about passing it on to your, your child correct but my, listen, this is my unique story. It could be different for somebody else. I don't know. Well, your when, we story... to, when, when we go to Connecticut, I put her in white, white leggings and put the socks and spray her down and let her go play. But I'm an educated mother in where I, she wears all white, long sleeves, long pants, tucks the pants into the socks, spray her down with TikTok naturals on her skin. And then I do off on the outside of the clothes. So Allie, once you had your daughter, Harley, and you've been in remission, you've been doing well, did you have any other health challenges or have you been pretty much symptom-free and living a healthy life since having your daughter? I've been pretty good, actually. Yeah, I really have been. I've been really, 
I, I think there, there, is, there is something that shifted after giving birth. So before I hand this back over to Rich and he, for Rich to conclude this, this interview, I just want to ask a question because it helps put things in perspective for people listening. Give us an idea of one of your, your worst symptoms or one of your worst moments because of Lyme disease. And then one of the things that you're doing today that you never thought in a million years you could have done after being sick with Lyme. Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Oh, running. I, I, I can, I, uh, in the beginning of the lockdown, beginning of quarantine of, of COVID, I started to, to jog every day. And that's something that my joints and body couldn't really handle that well, or so I thought. And jogging and running has been a big part of my life, which I never thought that would be sort of a, a, a thing that I could handle, but I, but I can do very well with it, actually. So, Ali, let's talk about the transformational experience that Lyme disease has been for you. And you sort of touched on that through a number of different parts of this uh, journey. But one of the things that, that became clear to me is that you came to uh, a different relationship with yourself through this journey. Yeah. yeah. And part of the, the most moving part of the journey, as I, I've understood it, was that you learned how to heal spiritually emotionally, and then physically. So talk to us about your spiritual transformation and your emotional transformation and how that played a large role in your physical healing. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that once, once that, that, that moment where I really decided that I wanted to take matters into my own hands and wanted to be well, I created this vision of, of myself as a well person. Like if I didn't have Lyme disease, what would I want to be like? What would I want to how would I want to function in the world? And I think that that really setting that goal and that vision really helped me understand who I was and what I wanted. And, and mine was very basic. It was a very simple thing. It was just really just wanting to live a normal life and being able to go to a grocery store and make a grocery list and, and not being overwhelmed by that. I'm sorry, I still struggle with that, by the way, <laughs> but um, no, it's funny. I, I, I uh, turned to meditation and spirituality. When I say spirituality, I just, I just mean like, you know, I read a lot of, I read a lot of books like the, the power of now and Ram, Ram Dass's teachings really helped helped me get through a lot of times. And uh, I think having, having a belief that maybe we're on this planet for other reasons and, and, and it's, there's something out there that is greater than us. And just to kind of not take this whole life experience too seriously to wear life like a loose garment and just sort of enjoy, relax and have fun a little bit more and not be so rigid and uptight with everything. So that, that helped. And I, I kind of looked at all these experiences, huh? Okay. This is fascinating. How can I use these experiences to evolve, evolve my spirit a little bit. And maybe these are things that I need to learn. These are, there are always lessons within challenges. And I think it's more interesting to approach life in that way. When a challenge is presented, 
you think, what are the possible lessons that I can take out of this? And what are the possible silver linings that I want to find through this, through this process? And I, that awareness uh, helped, helped me get, go through these experiences in a way that wasn't so in the, in the, in the weeds of it. I was able to sort of see the forest over. And um, I worked with a lot of healers and, and past life regression coaches. And, you know, I, yeah, I did. I did a lot of that sort of wild, weird, he, he, you know, it was fun. It was interesting. It was made the journey a little bit more fun. And uh, I, I, it resonated with me. So I went with it and I learned so many different things through, through the experiences and was able to reconnect with a much deeper, deeper side of my spirit than I ever had before. And it made the experience more fun and more enjoyable. Um, and I really connected with, with myself and formed a, a relationship with myself. And I, and I, at one point had, I worked with this, with this trainer who helped teach me how to care for myself as if I were a three-year-old. And I, I did, I did, I did this work. I did like a lot of emotional work around taking care of yourself and f forming a relationship with yourself in which you truly love yourself like a child. And it felt so stupid and so idiotic and so silly to like do this work, but it was really, really, really helpful. And I would do things like, okay, sweetie, it's time to cut. It's time to take your, your vitamins and it's time to, we're going to feed you now. And you're going to take a nap and we're going to take a walk in the fresh air. And I had to, I did this and it felt so like silly, but it was so beneficial and exercises like talking to myself in the mirror and positive affirmations in the mirror um, were incredibly beneficial. And you have to like, kind of get past yourself while doing that. And, um, those exercises are things that I, that I, I work with a lot of Lyme patients, uh, who I'm connected with and, and walk them through these exercises and help coach them through them. Because I, I, these are the, these are the, these are the things that help you do the real work. Um, besides just the taking of the vitamin, the, the herbs and the medicine and, and putting healthy food into your body. It's, it's having the more spiritual, emotional or psychological element to it just, just makes it more interesting. And I think it's more enriching. Well, you've talked about detoxing a lot in uh, a lot of the materials you've written. Yeah. You've talked about spiritual detoxing, emotional detoxing, and right. physical detoxing. So can right. you talk to us about the importance of, uh, of detoxing generally and yes. speak specifically about allowing yourself to emotionally and spiritually detox mm -hmm. as an important element of your healing journey. Right. So it is, it's incredibly important, especially when you are physically detoxing, because when you're physically detoxing, you're more sensitive, you're more vulnerable, you're more open, you're, I mean, you're detoxing emotionally as well. So it's very, it was very important for me to only associate with people who were very healthy and well emotionally and mentally. Um, I also did not watch the news. 
during this time, I did not watch any violent TV shows or movies. And I read books that were nourishing. I, you know, again, like I said, I read a lot of Eckhart Tolle, Ram Dass, et cetera. And those, that literature kept me on this path and kept me in that vortex of wellness and nourishment. Um, and I created a cocoon. I created a, a chamber of positivity and, and well, healthy, healing, vibrant people who are on that vibrational level that I needed to be in, in order for my physical cells to start going in the same direction. Now, in your, in your book, you talked about your toolbox. Yeah. Uh, and um, you've sort of given us a description, a lot of how you came to developing these tools that you put in your toolbox. Yeah. And, um, and I really enjoyed the way you described both building the toolbox that you use to protect yourself emotionally, for example, where you talked about protecting your mind and protecting yourself spiritually and protecting yourself um, uh, physically. But then you also talked about how you created a different toolbox for you when you were going through your pregnancy to make sure that you would be safe and your daughter would be safe as you're going through the pregnancy. So can you talk to us more about the items that you have in your toolbox and how they may be different for each person going on the journey. And, and I guess I like to know like how you collected all the tools that you talk about right. in the book. For example, you uh, talked about having phone numbers of healthy people, of breathing yeah. exercises, uh, writing practices, your therapist, food, herbs, um, meditation, and, uh, and not lying to yourself. I, they were all really powerful pieces of, of the toolbox that you wrote about. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of, I mean, so a lot, some of the tools are more esoteric tools and some of them are more tangible. Like I have, a, you know, an arsenal of amazing uh, essential oils. I have these little goddess oracle cards that I love pulling and doing in journals and sage and a, a playlist of music that makes me just want to hop around and dance phone numbers of healthy people and healers. And I think that having everything in one place, which right now mine are a little scattered, <laughs> like five different places, but to have everything at one, in one place and written down so you don't forget. Cause I think in, in moments of crisis, we go into the forgetting mode. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Allie Hilfiger. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Allie, please visit our Instagram page at Allie Hilfiger. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to offer. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank your community for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.